Matthew chapter 25. I want to pick up on a passage that we just briefly alluded to. It took probably about two minutes uh, last uh, time when we were looking at Deuteronomy, but I want to deal with it at more length. Matthew chapter 25, and I want to read verses 14 through 30. This is the inerrant, authoritative word of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each one according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be a, a ton of uh, notes on the overhead so if you don't want to be scrabbling like mad uh, there are outlines on the back table that uh, you're welcome to have in fact uh, uh, we can maybe have somebody distribute them you could just raise your hand and uh, uh, Jacob will uh, get you a copy of those but my subject today is biblical risk management and this is very much a part of our series on the Christian and prosperity but again, it is a subject that affects all of life. Uh, it should affect our church strategy. It should affect our leadership in the home, our views of uh, birth control, finances, prayer, disobedience because we're fearing something. Uh, it really does affect everything in life, and I think it's a very important uh, subject that we need to lay hold of. Now, this is dealt with in the book of Deuteronomy, but the reason I'm going here is I couldn't find any one passage in Deuteronomy that dealt with as many principles as Matthew 25 does. So we're just going to stick uh, with this parable today. Now, I define risk on the outline there uh, very simply as any decision or action that exposes someone to the possibility of loss or injury. So risk is any decision or action 
that exposes someone to the possibility of loss or injury. So if uh, you take a risk, you could lose money, you could lose face in front of other people, you could lose your job, your life, and you could not only endanger yourself, but you could endanger other people as well. And so I think it's worthwhile asking, is it legitimate to take risks? There are some people who say, no, don't take risks. It is not legitimate. But uh, uh, I think we have to say it depends. Even risks that may endanger other people, it depends on the circumstances. It could be a time where a failure to take a given risk could actually involve people in greater danger than failing to take this immediate risk that uh, you're taking. In fact, sometimes the most unwise thing that you could do is to play it safe. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, many, many people, I think, hate risk. I think probably all people hate risk. And their aversion to risk paralyzes them from making the right decisions or makes them so slow in making the decision by the time they've made it, it's too late. Okay, so first point that I want to look at is that risk is unavoidable. And this is one of the most important points in this sermon because if, if you have a hard time making decisions because you just fear the risks that are involved, you really need to lay hold of this. It'll free you up because if you realize, hey, risk is unavoidable. I'm just changing one risk for another risk. It's going to help you to look at those risks in a different way. Unless you are God, risk is unavoidable. It's unavoidable, first of all, because we are not omniscient. I think that should be fairly straightforward. If we knew things before they happened, there wouldn't be any risk for us, and that's why in the ultimate sense, God has no risk. He knows everything. If you knew exactly every price that uh, any stock would have in the stock market, yeah, there wouldn't be any risk in investing. Uh, no, there, may, there wouldn't be a stock market if everybody knew that, but uh, uh, if you're the only one that was omniscient, hey, there wouldn't be any risk whatsoever in uh, investing in stocks. Uh, if you knew everything, then there would be no risk in getting married because you would know the character of that person. You would know whether in 10 years they would commit adultery or whether they'd divorce you. Uh, there would be no risk in having children uh, if you knew everything. But with increased ignorance comes increased risk. And one of the things I want to point out is that God intended it to be that way. If you look at uh, verse 14, uh, Jesus is the person who travels into a far country. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And again, in verse 15, it mentions that he went uh, on a journey. Now, we might think it would have been marvelous if Jesus hadn't gone on a long journey, if he could be here right beside me telling me every decision that I need to make. I mean, wouldn't that be cool if the Meisners didn't uh, have to worry about which furnace, you know, is going to be a lemon? They knew ahead of time, no, I don't want that one. I want this, this particular furnace because I know everything. Or if Jesus told them which furnace to have, that would be great. Have you gotten your furnace yet? <laughs> Not quite yet, okay. Uh, it, it'd be terrific, uh, we might think, if um, uh, the moment we had any other kind of a, a problem, maybe it's disciplining of our children, we could say, okay, Lord, what do I do? And he would tell you the exact discipline that would produce just the right results in your children. Uh, he could tell you which neighbor to talk to about the gospel, which one, you know, would not be receptive to the gospel. But unfortunately, verse 14 says that Jesus has gone to a far country, and we've got to manage the goods without always knowing exactly what Jesus' decision would have been 
if he was here and we might say yeah but we've got the word of god and that's true and that gives us a tremendous advantage over unbelievers because it gives us knowledge unbelievers do not have and we can use that in risk management but you know what it doesn't take away all risk because none of us perfectly interprets the word of god and none of us once we've understood the word of god perfectly applies it to the situations that we're living in and you might say but the scripture says in james 1 that if anyone lacks wisdom we can ask of god and he'll give us the wisdom if we ask in faith it'll be given to us but again we don't always perfectly interpret the wisdom that the lord gives or it may be a situation the lord's given us the wisdom for a given decision but we don't know the outcome okay we've made the right decision the lord's given us guidance we've made the right decision we still don't know what the outcome might be paul received more revelations than any of us ever have or will and yet he took risks not knowing what the outcome of those decisions would be for example uh, the prophet agabus in acts 21 verse 10 warned paul that if he went to jerusalem he would be captured by the jews he'd be handed over uh, to the gentiles now paul's passion for the cause of christ was so strong he was willing to die in jerusalem now he didn't end up dying there or in rome because he got released and it was on a later imprisonment that he ended up dying but here's what he said to them what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart for i'm ready not only to be bound but also to die at jerusalem for the name of the lord jesus so when he would not be persuaded we ceased saying the will of the lord be done we don't always know what god's providential his decretive will in our life is uh, esther uh, she faced a huge risk by going before the king she could have been executed if he was not in a particularly good mood and yet she took that risk in order to try to save her people and god was pleased with that king david took risks for the cause of god he was right in doing so and i believe that the whole of paul's life was one extraordinary risk after another if he had played it safe i don't think the gentile world would have been turned upside down by the gospel listen to what paul uh, said acts 20 verse 23 he said the holy spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me now, he didn't know what the form of those afflictions would be but let me read you a brief description of the risks that paul had already survived in second corinthians chapter 11 the reason i'm emphasizing this is there are some people who just believe it is wrong to take risks and i want to disabuse you of that idea it's impossible to avoid risk second corinthians 11 beginning at verse 24 from the jews five times i received 40 stripes minus one three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i've been in the deep in journeys often in perils of waters in perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the gentiles in perils in the city in perils in the wilderness in perils in the sea in perils among false brethren in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness besides the other things what comes upon me daily my deep concern for all of the churches he never knew where the next blow would come from because it wasn't safe on the sea there were pirates there it wasn't safe on the road there were there were bandits there uh it wasn't safe for the jews wasn't safe for the gentiles and even his own brethren stabbed him in the back from time to time okay there is no such thing as a perfectly secure uh world okay uh, absolute safety is an illusion now we've always said the safest place to be is in the center of god's will right but uh, there is no such thing as absolute safety 
because it may be the Lord's time for us to be. I mean, look at what Paul went through. It was the Lord's will that he faced some of those struggles. Now, in the outline, I say, unfortunately, Jesus is in a far country. And I put the word unfortunately in quotes because it's really tongue-in-cheek. I don't believe it's unfortunate at all. Uh, I think we would be left as babies all of our lives if the Lord was here telling us every decision that we have to make. Uh, what he does is he has us make decisions within a wide range of options that are available, taking risks because it is one of the things that will mature us into dominion uh, creatures um, as part of our life, our, our maturing process. And, and it's built into the fabric of life. When you drive out of this place onto Dodge Street, you have no guarantee whatsoever that driving is going to be without risk. You know, a drunk could come and, and uh, kill you you know hit you head on you have no guarantee that you're not going to eat a, a deadly virus you know when you go out to the restaurant sometime a life is full of risks and uh, we can praise the lord we're not totally ignorant ignorance guarantees lack of knowledge guarantees risks we're not totally ignorant we have the word of god we have sufficient guidance the lord gives us to make the right decision but we don't always know what the outcomes will be now a second reason why risk is unavoidable is that we cannot avoid accountability to god just by avoiding responsibility uh, verse 14 indicates that what this man delivered to these servants was his property it says delivered his goods to them all that we have and are and own belongs to the lord and it's been entrusted to us as a stewardship trust which means we are going to face the risk of accountability to God for how we handle that stewardship that the Lord has given to us. Look at verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Now, there's coming a day when the Lord's going to settle accounts with us. Okay, and uh, even though it's a distant risk, it's far more important than the risk we tend to be preoccupied with in the present. Point C, wealth does not change the degree of risk that we face. It says that uh, the third servant was given one talent, and a talent is not um, uh, a specific amount of money. It's a measure of weight. You can have a talent of gold, a talent of copper, a talent of silver. And um, we find in verse 18 that he uses the term argurion. The word for money there, argurion, is literally silver. It's silver money that he has. So we know exactly the amount of money that was given here. And rather than putting the value into American dollars, which is constantly changing in value, D.A. Carson said the best method is to look at what the buying power of that silver would be back in those days. One talent was equal to 20 years' worth of wages for the average working man. So that's a lot of moolah. I mean, even the, the guy that had just one talent, he had a lot of money that was given to him. They all had wealth, and yet the parable makes clear that wealth does not change the degree of risk. The person who was given five talents, he could have lost it all. You know, the Lord could have made his ships go down in a storm and his camel caravans, you know, be uh, stolen by, you know, some marauders. And in fact, the third servant who was trying to play it safe, he did lose it all. The Lord took it away from him. And so I think we have to say it doesn't matter whether we've got much or whether we've got little. Risk is going to be there. Wealth does not take it away. Now, wealthy people frequently have learned how to manage risk in a wise way. That's why they're still rich. 
but uh, I think we all uh, know people who have been rich and have lost it all, and I think we know plenty of poor people who have gained an inheritance or gained, um, you know, million dollars, uh, what are these called, lotteries, and within six months or a year or two years, they're flat broke. They don't know how to, how to use it. Wealth does not diminish risk. Now, I've already stated point D. Uh, avoiding one set of risks always means facing a different set of risks. You're just exchanging one for the other. And usually with present-oriented people, the risk, the closer it is to the present, that's what they're preoccupied with. And uh, that's what the, the third man, the talent-burying man, did. Now let's move on to point two. Just because risk is unavoidable in life does not mean that we should be controlled by risk. And there are two ways we can be controlled by risk. We can relish it or we can fear it. The man with one talent says in verse 25, And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. It was fear of loss. <coughs> it was fear of the, ri <coughs> the risk of loss that was so overwhelming that he refused to take dominion with that. And so point A says, those who unduly fear risk are often controlled by risk at the expense of dominion. Point B shows the opposite extreme. Those like gamblers or daredevils, etc., are intrigued by risk, who are intrigued by risk, are often controlled by risk at the expense of dominion as well. Now, some people have tried to justify gambling by saying, hey, all of life's a gamble. You know, when you invest in the stock market, it's a gamble. And I believe that there was a fundamental difference between the two. I've tried to capture it in the word dominion, but economists like Thomas, Thomas Sowell, uh, they can explain the difference uh, just in terms of economics. Here's how he uh, words it. He says, speculation is often misunderstood as being the same as gambling, when in fact it is the opposite of gambling. And you have to read the whole chapter to see all of the concrete ways in which he shows it's the very opposite of gambling. But here he summarizes, he says, what gambling involves, whether in games of chance or in actions like playing Russian roulette, is creating a risk that would otherwise not exist in order either to profit or to exhibit one's skill or lack of fear. What economic speculation involves is coping with an inherent risk in such a way as to minimize it and to leave it to be borne by whoever is best equipped to bear it. And he uses examples like um, insurance companies uh, who, you know, are skillfully spread the risk or um, like commodity uh, traders who, um, uh, you know, basically help farmers to manage the risk of, uh, of growing uh, a farm. Now, point C, the dominionist neither fears nor relishes risk. His focus is on the Lord and maximizing the dominion and minimizing uh, the amount of risk that he's going to face. And it, by the way, this doesn't have to just deal with money. It can deal with anything. You know, a man may uh, see a woman as being the number one choice to be his bride, but because of fear of the risk of being rejected, never asks that person to do that. In fact, you know, I knew somebody up in Canada had to leave Holland in shame because three times he didn't show up at his wedding. He was just scared to death of the, of the risks of being married to this person. I mean, a whole lifelong commitment, you know, to this person. So these principles really apply to everything. We're looking at, at uh, our dominion. We're looking at, um, at finances, but it applies to everything. And so, yes, risks are unavoidable, but point two, they should be neither feared nor relished as an end in themselves, but should be minimized 
through wise stewardship, like spreading the risk, hiring others to manage the risk, etc. And we're not even going to get into that. Uh, I just encourage you to read books that amplify on that uh, tremendously. I'm going to give you the principles. I hope you're motivated to go and study. Point three, the logical conclusion is that appropriate risk-taking is pleasing to God. First two servants went and they immediately traded with the money, verse 16, and since they traded with the money, that means that they put their capital at risk. Okay, and yet the Lord was pleased with them. In verses 21 and 23, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. And really, the only investment in this whole chapter, which to, a, to some degree was a, a fairly guaranteed rate of return, is the one that's mentioned in verse 27. It's depositing your bankers. <coughs> and um, in 30 AD, it was a small rate of return. In 30 AD, uh, the, the Roman bankers charged 12% according to several sources that um, I, I looked at. And uh, yet, if you were the one depositing that, you, would, you didn't get anywhere near that amount of money. You were, you were happy if you got half of that. You know, th- this person had a fair sum of money to invest. He probably got about half of, uh, of that 12%, but uh, others were not. Now, the first two men chose instead to trade. That was a venture that involved ships, caravans, many other risks. The ships could go down in a storm. The caravans, as I mentioned earlier, could get robbed. A whole pile of risks that they had to go through. And the master praised these men for managing risk just as he will praise you and I when we manage risk in biblical fashion. And if you've never thought about that, uh, you really need to because it's part and parcel of everything that you do. How you handle your roof, your leaking roof, and how you handle that faulty you know, gas valve on your stove, that's all a part of risk management. The fourth principle uh, that at least deserves some mention, even though I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, is that the degree of risk varies not only in the kind of investment that you engage in, but also in the period of time over which something is invested. Now, Thomas Sowell spends three whole chapters on this. I mean, there's profound implications uh, of this. I'm only going to spend a couple minutes. But this is a rabbit trail you may in the future want to go down yourself. But uh, I think the principles, those of you who have read the book, um, uh, you can see the principles here. Each of the first two men doubled their money in the years that the master was away. We're not told how long he was gone. Verse 19 says it was a long time. And verses 20 and 22 say that during that time he was away, they doubled the money. Now, what's long for a master to be away and not, you know, looking at his finances? Is it one year? Is it five years? We're just not told how long is a long time. But using the rule of 72, and that's where you just divide into 72 either the number of years to get the interest or you divide the interest to get the number of years it takes to double the money. Using the rule of 72, you could use several scenarios of how long it would take these people to have doubled their money. We already know what the maximum ceiling for interest was. All throughout the Roman Empire, from the time of Julius Caesar all the way through past Christ, 12% was the legal limit, and bankers would be punished if they ever got caught charging more than 12% on any loans that they gave out. And so these people, if they they didn't even involve, there were higher um, uh, returns back at that time I just found out this past week there is uh, several great papers but there's a book written by uh, Jean Andreau uh, it was written in, in French and just recently translated into English it's uh, Cambridge University Press fantastic uh, little book that goes through 
um, uh, inflation, uh, wages, price controls, uh, interest, banking principles in ancient Rome. It's just a fantastic little book. But anyway, there were some, um, you know, things that people, uh, there's records that they made 30% per year, 60%, but not in terms of loans. And so if we just say these guys weren't involved in trading, you know, New King James translation of trading there is, um, I, I think, probably the right, the right uh, translation. But let's just take the most conservative figure. They could have at least gotten 12%. That means <coughs> using the, the rule of 72 that uh, they would have doubled their money in, a, in six years. Okay? Now, in contrast, using the method that was is mentioned in verse 27, and that's the most conservative, if you look at the banking laws that uh, Rome had, uh, it was much more secure investment to put your money into a bank than to be a banker and loan it out to somebody else. And it would have taken, as opposed to six years, it would have taken anywhere between 14 and 24 years for them to double their money. Now, we don't know. There's not enough information here to know what the kind of spread was between them. But the point I want to, uh, to bring out is that with increased risk, there was increased profit that these people have. And I think anybody who was living back at that time knew, just on the surface, as the parable was being told, that's what was uh, that was, uh, that's what was happening in the, um, in the parable. And so the, the first few servants, they're going to get more profit than the method that's used in verse 27. And you can do some calculations yourself using the, the rule of 72. If you consider 12 years to be a long time, it would take at least 6% interest per year uh, to double the money. If you consider four years to be a long time away, it takes 18% interest to double the money in four years. And there are other, other plans that uh, you, know, you could look at. Now, I don't want to amplify on this. There's a lot of economics books you can look at uh, that will flesh that out. The fifth principle is that God entrusts possessions to his servants based upon their ability to manage them. Verse 15. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. What the master was doing here is he was risking his own money by... But by spreading it amongst three brokers is basically what it amounts to. And the key phrase here is that he gave to each according to his ability. Obviously, the third servant did not have as many, uh, much ability as the person who was given five talents. Now, if this is true, then the servants should have followed suit. We should only handle what we have the ability to manage. And so point six and seven logically follow. If you are to imitate God, this means that the amount of capital that you place at risk should correspond to your level of knowledge. The third servant was not criticized for lacking knowledge in um, trading and speculation. He may not have had any knowledge in trading and speculation. What he's criticized for in verse 26 is his laziness, his lack of initiative. His Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. Now, they all had ability. That's what the earlier verse said. He gave to each according to his ability. He had the ability to handle that, and he could have at least put it into the bank and gained some interest from that money. There are many of us, myself included, who will probably never have the ability to be able to start and to manage certain kinds of businesses uh, or to be able to speculate in certain types of uh, 
of uh, in, in investment vehicles. And if that's the case, man, we shouldn't be putting much money, maybe none at all, into those particular kinds of projects. If we do have a little bit of ability, we can put some uh, in there. But uh, we need to be very careful. I think where we get ourselves into trouble is where we put all of our money into a hot deal that some expert has told us about, and we lose it all. And the reason we lose it all is because he's the guy that has the knowledge, the expert. We don't have the knowledge to manage this. And by the time you know, you've read his book on how to make a profit you know, in the real estate market, uh, he's gotten out of the real estate market because he knows now something else is going to be producing better. And if you don't have knowledge in an area, don't invest in it. That's basically the principle, I think, that flows from, uh, flows from this passage. Uh, the seventh principle is related. It's not just the amount of money, but also the level of risk which you can safely take that should correspond to your level of knowledge. And I think what I've said with regard to the third man applies. Christ did not criticizing, criticize this man for failing to put his money into high-yielding investments. He did not criticize him for that. He criticized him for failing to do anything. And I think any one of us have the ability to at least beat inflation or keep pace with inflation uh, through, through, through the bank and being able to monitor, monitor it. Okay, uh, the eighth point is that financial skills are learned and God has enough trust in his people to risk his possessions on those who are willing to learn. Now, in a sense, you're, you're, you're the brokers, you know, and Jesus has entrusted you with some money that he wants you to be wisely investing and with some children. He wants you to be wisely investing in houses and health and, and things like that. Every one of you has been given something, and it's grace, pure grace. You didn't deserve it. He just says, look, I've decided to bestow upon you these these types of things and what you do with those possessions determines on how much more the Lord is willing to entrust you with verse 21 says well done good and faithful servant you were faithful over a few things I will make you ruler over many things okay there's the increase enter into the joy of the Lord now look at God's treatment of the person who does nothing with the Lord's deposit I mean if you've given money to a broker and he sat on it for three years, and you come to him and you say, okay, did you invest it like I told you to? And he says, no, I've just had it sitting here. here here's your money back. Would you continue to use that broker? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, that's basically what he's saying here, verses 28 and, and following. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Why? The guy with ten talents has a proven track record. Okay, you trust him. He's going to do wonderful with your money. And so he says, uh, take it from... The, uh, talent from him give it to him who has ten talents for to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance but from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, each of the first two men learned from managing the lord's resources and so god gave them more and we all every one of us has been given something as we stretch ourselves and we use what God has given to us faithfully, God entrusts us with more, and he entrusts us with more. That's the principle. Uh, eighth principle is that increased prosperity is impossible without taking risks. Now, I've already dealt with uh, that concept in a previous message, so I'm going to skip to the last two points. Point 10. By definition, the third servant is present-oriented. You can see that in verse 29. He's not driven by the future. You know, the future risk 
uh, of loss there, that doesn't motivate him as much as the immediate losses that he is, is worrying about. So he's present-oriented. But what I want to point out in this section is that the present-orientedness makes him both envious of the master and critical of the master's methods of earning money. And I've listed in the outline three ways in this passage that it speaks of making money. The first is by working and saving up goods. Okay, before you can invest anything, you've got to have labored and accumulated some of the excess in order to invest, and that's implied in verse 14. Second way is by having other people work for you. Now, initially, these servants appeared not to have been investors. They had worked in some other area of responsibility. Now what he's doing is he's employing them in a sense, you could say, as, as, as brokers, as investors, to manage his resources. And there comes a time, just thinking of it from the master's perspective, there comes a time when you're stretched so, so thinly, if you're going to be able to take more dominion, you've got to involve other people working with you. So that's what he's doing. He's employing other people, and he's profiting from the labors of these people. Now, they, this guy's thinking that he's been exploited, you know. But he's profiting from their labors. And um, he says, hey, you could have employed somebody. I'm not the only one that employs you. In verse 27, you could have employed the bankers. You know, every one of you who has a checking account or has a savings account, you've got an employee. And having that checking account is freeing up a lot of hassle that enables you to have more time to take dominion for the Lord. And uh, there's, there's many other ways in which we can um, have servants. For example, uh, most of you have telephones, have uh, cars, washing machines, dishwashers. You've got different kinds of appliances that are doing things that in Christ's day only servants could do. That's pretty cool. You guys are wealthy. <laughs> You're wealthy enough to have your own servants, a whole passel of servants. But the neat thing about that is God says, that's great, that's great. You can profit from the the servants that you are employing because it frees you up to be more efficient in taking in taking dominion so feel good about yourselves the third way to make money is to make your money work for you now the uh though the word traded in verse 25 does have the side meaning a metaphorical meaning of trading uh and demosthenes and there are other greek uh writers who used it frequently with that meaning its most common meaning and its literal meaning is work. Here's how the NIV translates it. And I think it's actually in some ways more literal, but the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. He put his money to work. So his money is working for him. He's earning money with his money is what he's, he's uh, basically talking about. And putting money in the bank, verse 27 is one way of doing it. Trading is another way of making your money work for you. Now, the last two ways that I've listed there of uh, making money are, I think, included under the phrase in verse 24, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. The servant is basically accusing him of something. Okay? He interprets this as making the master a hard master. You know, that, that's kind of a slanderous thing. He doesn't love his master. He's a hard master. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, points out that the accusation in verse 24 is that the master was exploiting the labors of others. In effect, he's claiming, you're a capitalist. You know, he's accusing him of being a capitalist. Apparently, he believes the Marxist lie that the only legitimate form of wealth creation is number one. 
okay? You shouldn't be making a profit from the labors of other people. You shouldn't be making a profit from money, okay? It's only your labors that uh, are legitimate. And by the way, a lot of Christians have brought into this. Mooney's book, uh, you know, it's perturbing to see, and he claims to be a Reconstructionist, but it's per- per- perturbing to see people uh, who are taking sides with this servant rather than with the master. And in a nutshell, this is the Marxist labor theory of value and Marx's exploitation theory of profits. See, Marxism is an economics of envy, and it will always be unproductive. It always will. Well, the master in verse 26, he rejects the idea that he's a hard man, but he does not reject the idea he's a capitalist. He says, of course I'm a capitalist. How else do you think you're going to have a job? Okay, verse 26, look at what he says there. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. He's basically saying, of course I've got fields that I've never set foot on. How else do you think I'm going to get rich? I hire other people to do the scattering of the seed there, and I'm making profit from them. I have no problems in admitting I'm a capitalist, is basically what this master is, uh, is saying. He admitted that he made profit from money, money making money as well as people making money for him. And, and I believe that the capitalist must see this as a moral imperative and not a moral lapse like the Marxist sees it. Okay, we're getting into a little heavier stuff, but I think this is straight out of the scripture. I think it's important that we, that we master this. In fact, the master treats the servant as hypocritical because the servant has benefited from his richness. Okay, and in verse 26, he makes no bones about the fact that the Marxism of the coin-bearing servant is wickedness and laziness personified. You wicked and lazy servant. And so what you've got here is two worldviews that are in utter conflict with each other. You've got the unproductivity of the, of the socialistic worldview, and then you've got the productivity of the capitalistic worldview. And those are in conflict with each other in this parable. Now, what the servant is blinded to are that there are increased responsibilities and there are increased risks <clears throat> that are involved in capitalism. That's why the rich gets paid more. He's taking far more risks. He needs to be compensated for those increased risks. I mean, there's the potential he could lose it all as well because of those risks. And rather than being critical of the rich man, the servant should have been grateful that this rich man's efficiency and wise management of risk has provided him a job. See, with increased risk comes increased salary or reward. What the servant wants is a high salary without the risk. And the rich man says, that's wicked. Now, those are offensive words to, to many people. This is the inspired word of God. Marxism is wickedness, and it is blindness to what is needed to properly manage risk. Point B, to be present-oriented is to be blinded to the true nature of risks and uncertainties and to want everyone else to become present-oriented with us. If you've read Idols for Destruction, it's what uh, Schlossberg calls Rizontamont. Okay. Uh, If God prospers you, you probably ought to keep it a secret to some degree because otherwise there are going to be people who want to tear you down and, you know, are going to accuse you just like this poor, uh, this, this, this one steward was accusing the rich man. You need to use it but not flaunt it and, uh, uh, take dominion with it, not be embarrassed by it, but, um, you're going to be a target. Okay, this servant feared potential losses but totally ignored the guaranteed loss he would face in eternity. And it's not just Marxists. Capitalists also can fail on this in point 11. Whether people acknowledge that they're stewards or not, 
Verse 19 guarantees God's going to settle accounts. And it should be our long-term goal to have Christ well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, the other alternative is loss, and if we're not believers, it's going to be eternal loss in hell. Verses 28 through 30. Therefore take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given. He will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's the ultimate risk that unbelievers totally ignore unless their hearts are regenerated and transformed by God's grace. Now if you've been regenerated, there should be no excuse for you to fail to interpret all of life in terms of eternity, to interpret your risk in, in terms of eternity. And it's my prayer that each and every one of us would do so. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word talks about finances. We thank you that your word talks about risk. It talks about how we manage our home, how we manage our family. And even though I've not applied these principles to other areas of life, I pray, Father, you'd give wisdom to these people to uh, make the application. At the same moment, crank the reverb back. Oh, yeah, little tag on the end. Or do you mean just kind of let it hang with them? I thought what you could do is play it, and then you could pull up the reverb, and then as soon as you stop playing, you'll have this reverb here. But that that low end on a bagpipe would sound pretty good. <laughs>